but it's really a coming of age story. Um, that's like a middle-aged coming of age story. And that can happen for so many of us women as well. I'm 56 years old. I, I was blessed that I could stay home and raise my children that are 27, almost 26 and 19. And a couple of years ago, I started to go back to work part-time. And then I wrote my first book. I wrote my second book and I'm having my own coming of age at, 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 56. You know, I'm also dealing with some health issues that I didn't expect uh, to happen, but it's a challenge that, you know, I'm stepping up to and I'm finding inner strength and I'm finding, you know, the support and strength from my Mahjong friends and family and friends in, in general. And it's been so wonderful. But I, I find for, for me, women's strength is so important. It's like oxygen for me. Hi. I'm Sylvia Beckerman. Join me today as I talk to an extraordinary woman who is changing the world by making a difference in her life and the lives of those around her. Hi, I'm Fern Bernstein, the author and podcast host of Mahjong Mondays and Staunch, the Edies of Grey Gardens. Welcome to Sylvia and Me. Fern, I am so happy that you're here with me today. I, as you know, um, I found you through Instagram. I saw a post you did on Mahjong. And now I don't play Mahjong, but my aunt and my sister are very much into it. And I hear about the tiles and, and so on and so forth. And they're the, the hands that they've done. But what I hear so loudly is the fun part of it. And I don't mean playing Marjan is not fun, but I'm talking about the camaraderie, the, the, yeah. the, the chatter, the communication, the lunch, the, you know, and that's, that is so important. And so many people don't have that. They don't understand we've lost so much communication and women supporting women is, is key. Yes. And it's helped you through so much. And I just want to read something that you, you wrote. Um, everyone faces adversity. Everyone has challenges. But how we face those challenges can have a significant impact both on our journey and the outcome. Mm. And you are living that. Perseverance. Upbeat. Um, I want to talk first about Mahjong, um, your book, uh, staunch, the eddies of gray gardens just came out this past October, mm -hmm. yes. but I want to talk about Mahjong right now because it's going to, I believe it really belongs in with gray gardens. They join each other. Yes. There um, is definitely a common theme and Sylvia, I love to talk about Mahjong, so <laughs> yes, happy, happy to start our conversation with that. And for people who don't know, um, you know, of course, I have people who play Mahjong who say, oh, everyone knows the history of it, but I don't really think so because growing up, you know, my parents played Mahjong, maybe there was Canasta, you heard people, and Bridge, sure. Bridge. and <laughs> to me, it was always, it sounded like something old people did. Mm -hmm. Not anymore. Right. 
So tell us, give us a little bit of the history of Mahjong because I love when it kind of got popular. Sure. So I've done research on on the history of Mahjong. And what I've discovered is it was brought to America in the 1920s by a man named Joseph Babcock. He worked for the Standard Oil Company. Uh, He's from America, but was living in, I guess, like Shanghai. And of course, everywhere in China, there's people are playing Mahjong. It was generally played uh, by men. Um, And so he learned the game and really enjoyed playing it. And when he came back to America, he brought it, but he made a few different changes and he put numerals on the tiles. So the American version has numbers and there was no standardized card. And I'm just going to show for those that are looking on YouTube. This is a a Mahjong player's Bible. It's called the National Mahjong League card. And every year this particular card comes out. And it has different hands and there's different sections. I have my handy highlighters. I was playing two-player Mahjong with my friend yesterday. And these highlighters are are just such a wonderful uh, tool for new players and when we're playing uh, Siamese. So this is our Bible. And everyone has to learn, take lessons. And once you get used to the mechanics of the game, um, it's just just so much fun. through history, and it's been in America for, gosh, I guess 100, 100 years or so now, um, it's gone through a little bit of an evolution. So this card came out in 1937. I apologize. My dog is chiming in the background, my Bernadoodle. Um, so there were there were no hands you know, written down in, in a card. There were not enough specific rules. And there was a decline in um, in people wanting to play. There was a lot of strife around the table. So in 1937, the National Mahjong League was formed by a bunch of women, and they were um, mostly Jewish women, and they created rules and uh, standardized rules. And they also had um, created, uh, I guess, you know, monetary ways for us to get a little compensation. So there's values on the card and these values, um, you know, 25, 30, and we get 25 or 30 cents per hand. Um, So it's kind of fun. And the National Mahjong League also made a lot of donations to different uh, charities um, throughout the country. Uh, there was a little dip um, again in, in in the interest, and then there was a resurgence in the fifties. So a lot of people that were living in the city were going out to Long Island and Connecticut, you know, the tri-state area. And a lot of these women were Jewish, and they would go to their synagogues and would learn how to play mahjong, and created a sense of connectivity in their new neighborhoods because they didn't really have you know people that they knew yet. So. Mahjong has really, for I think a very long time, been the glue that brings women together. And yes, it can bring men together as well. There's groups of men that play, um, but predominantly um, a majority of players of Mahjong are women, like probably 90 to 95% of American Mahjong. And, um, you know, it's I think it's kept its, its interest. And I think there's currently another boom going on with Mahjong and especially out West. Texas seems to be a hot spot now where all of these young savvy women are um, learning the game. And there's some companies that have just um, 
came into business and they make very whimsical tiles. So um, there's definitely been a resurgence in Mahjong. And I think what I've heard and I've, you know, on my podcast, I've had so many different guests, just the common denominator that every single person seems to, to come back to is what we feel around the Mahjong table. It's that connectivity. It's meeting with women once a week, making this kind of your sacred space. And there's noshing, there's sometimes meals involved, snacks galore. Some women like to have wine. Some people, um, even there, there's a woman out, out West. I, I love what she does, Topi Sock. She does marijuana mahjong. And she has people take taxis to, or Ubers, you know, to where she's hosting. And they partake in that way. It's quite quite fascinating. So there's many different ways to, to play the game. Um, but it's it's just so wonderful. And it's touched my life in such a significant way. I, I wrote a book about it. And, you know, my first book, Mahjong Mondays, is a memoir. And I, you know, brought into the storyline how it touched my life, how one of my girlfriends who came into the game had lost her husband. And she was obviously depressed for quite a while. And when she was ready to face the world, she came into the fold of our Mahjong game and we women welcomed her. And it's almost like you create a sisterhood. There's a very special bond. I'm not well, going to say it happens at every single table. There's yeah. some women that are, you know, competitive and they just want to, you know, play, get in and get out kind of thing. But the majority of women that play really focus on what they feel and they, you know, they feel connected. Uh, they feel comfortable and it's, it's just a, a wonderful, a wonderful experience for so many of us players. Well, it also um, is a rallying place. It's a safe place. It's kind of like the old sailing saying, "What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas." I was thinking that. Yes, and I've, you know what I've happens at the Manjan table oh, stays absolutely. there. I have and, so many secrets that I keep between my two ears that <laughs> would like explode. It's yeah. So there's a certain sense of safety, you know, amongst amongst us all as well. And even if you only see this group of women once a week, it just brings that connectivity back. Yeah. So that, as you said, it got you through some tough times, mm -hmm. some very tough times. And it got that other woman that you mentioned. Yeah. Who, and, you know, uh, all of us. There, so there were five of us in in our group, and every single one of us was dealing with an issue. I mean, this is life. We're all human. Number one, we're all flawed. We all have problems. We all had children, so that creates more problems. Um, <laughs> health is is an issue. One one woman had dealt with cancer um, a few years ago, and you know, thank God she did okay. And you know, there's always issues with. With family members, with our children, with our husbands, um, with health, there's there's so much. And we just all kind of help each other around around the table. There's a part of the game called the Charleston, and it's an exchange of tiles, um, a very specific way that we go around the table and and pass these tiles. And I almost feel like when when you pass the tiles around, you know, you're just you're sharing a piece of yourself, and as conversations are are evolving around the table. You know that that just sense of security is is there, and and it's just such a beautiful, beautiful thing. And that takes me right into your new book, 
um, staunch the Edies of Grey Garden. And staunch really describes these two women. The other reason why I'm bringing it up, other than the fact that you know this is another passion of yours and you do a podcast on it, is for those who don't know, um, you know, Grey Gardens, the story of the Edies, it's Big Edie and Little Edie, and Big Edie's maiden name was Bouvier, and her yeah. married name was Beale. Mm-hmm. And Bouvier, her brother, is the father of Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis and yes. Lee Radswell. And so it brings this family together this it, these two eccentric yes various women, women yeah who um do not fall into what everyone wants them to do and that especially in today's world women have we're getting stronger in not falling into what society has dictated oh yes the, must do. So they were trailblazers. Right. Um, and when I say eccentric, of course, there are stories about them living, you know, hoarding cats and uh, run down big mansion because Edith, big Edie, married into money. She had money and her wanting to do what she wanted to do, which was be a singer. Yes. Um, turned her into almost a pauper. Yeah. So Bad. why did you, how did you even get connected? How did you find this passion for these two? Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. So it was, I guess, the summer of 19, of 2020. So we all remember what was happening then. And I was at my summer house in Southhold, and I was just working on the outline of a second book. And I was laying on the couch, just scrolling through HBO, and I come across this documentary called Grey Gardens now. I'm 56 years old. I summered on Long Island from when I was born up till I was 14. And I've lived on Long Island so many years. I've never heard of Grey Gardens. So I was intrigued by the picture. I said, okay, click. I pressed play. Down the rabbit hole I went. I I was actually left with so many questions after I saw the documentary. And um, I, I had to go into Google and I I I learned about Big Edie and Little Edie. And then I saw the HBO version, which is a, a beautiful version that Michael Susky directed. And he had Drew Barrymore portraying Little Edie and Jessica Lange portraying Big Edie. And it was really beautifully done. And it's a little easier to watch. And they filled in some of the, the holes, the gaps with their interpretation of the story. Um, then I watched some other shows that were connected. The Beals of Grey Gardens was done and, you know, I don't remember how many years ago, but it was footage not used in Grey Gardens that was left over. And that was put together um, by uh, Al- Albert Measles. And then back in, I think, 2017, that summer came out. And that's almost the prequel to Grey Gardens. So Lee Radswell, who's the sister of Jackie O, like you had mentioned, 
wanted to do a documentary. She hired the, hired the Measles brothers. They went out to the, the Hamptons and she wanted to do a documentary about growing up with her sister, um, you know, the beauty of East Hampton. And on her list of people she wanted to interview was her aunt and cousin. So when they went to do some filming over there, what was happening at the time at Great Gardens was very tumultuous. They were, I mean, almost evicted from the house. So Big Edie and Little Edie had asked for help from, from Jackie and Lee, and they were able to work with the town of East Hampton and, you know, and worked with contractors and were able to rectify the different violations. There was a slew of violations. They had intermittent electricity, running water, um, the floorboards were coming up. There were piles of, of cat food and, and human food cans that were four to five feet high in the kitchen, in the living room. It's, they had 30 plus cats. It, it was intense. And this was documented in that summer. And it only came out, um, I guess, after Lee Radswell had died. She decided to to shelve her film. She did not want it to go through in production. And um, I interviewed two of the editors of Grey Gardens. And in my podcast, they talk a little bit you know, ab- about that scenario. Um, so it was a really hard, hard situation. But what I loved so much and what I focused on as a theme in my book was the strength of women individually and collectively, because I think Big Edie individually was really such an independent, strong-willed woman. She came from a family with a lot of, mo- a lot of money. Her father was a top lawyer in, in New York until he lost his hearing in one ear and he couldn't, uh, he couldn't you know, be a lawyer anymore. And so he became a financier. And, um, you know, she was born with a silver spoon in her mouth, but she was, she was given voice lessons and piano lessons since she was a little girl. And she developed that craft until she was 20. And she probably wanted to be a professional opera singer. She really did have an operatic voice. Uh, but but it, let, let me interrupt for one second mm-hmm. because we're talking about the 20s. We're talking about a family of, of great wealth yes. um, who back in the day, that's what women were supposed to do. You gave them etiquette lessons. You gave them vocal lessons because any movie you see from, from that time, whether it be Downton Abbey or anything else, Bridget, women somehow always for had culture. a phenomenal voice. <laughs> And sang, yeah. but they were only supposed to sing for, for their family, their family exactly. and, and that's it, which is not what Big Edie wanted. Yeah. So she did get married. She married a man 14 years older than her that was a lawyer. He actually worked with, with her father when he was still a lawyer. And, you know, slowly after, I don't know, 10-ish years, the marriage started to really uh, disintegrate. And her love for wanting to sing was was always there. And it was part of the problem. And um, eventually she did get divorced and she was left Grey Gardens. She didn't get alimony. She did get a little child support for the children, uh, but she was able to keep Grey Gardens. And it became, I think, too big a house for her. And at some point, it became too much financially for her as well. She was given a 
her father's inheritance was put into a trust. So he didn't trust her with the money. So her brother, Blackjack Bouvier, who's Jackie's father, oversaw the trust and he would invest money for her and whatnot. So as you said, yes, during that time in the 20s, women women didn't perform, at least women of high society. They were on the social register and it just it just was very abnormal for women of that stature to do anything other than, than to be a wife, a mother, and a homemaker. So she broke the mold. She broke and she broke probably un, unbeknownst to her, maybe the trajectory of the life that maybe she wanted. I I I question, did she ever really think this could ever have happened to her? But you know, there there are stories. I forget the movie that Meryl Streep was in of a woman who wanted also to be an opera singer, and she really didn't have a voice. But she got to go, you know, to perform at uh, the Met or Carnegie. I, as I said, it was a while ago that I saw it. But I'd like to go a little bit further on as she now is living in this house. She doesn't have the money to really keep keep it up. But she also is so involved in in thinking that she can sing that she lets everything else basically go to pot. Um, and in comes her young daughter, who's um, maybe in her 20s, uh, who's going through, you have, remember, this is a historical fiction. So there's, you know, we have the skeletal and you've put um, the, the personal touch of these people in there. But we go to an era where now, all of a sudden, it, it's it's a story between a mother and a daughter, and it winds up coming into a story of a daughter caring for the mother. Yes. And that is such a reality in today's world. Sure. That, um, again, the strength mm-hmm. of these two women. Yes. And you've put such, you know, such personality and character into them. Thank you. It, Thank it's you. it's you know, it's fantastic because as women we don't often say to ourselves this is our passion, we're going to do it. It's it, it, we think about it two or three times before we do it, if we do it. Sure. Whereas with men, they don't think about it as as much they usually go ahead and try it mm-hmm. so tell us how you i know you've mentioned you know the documentaries and in your book uh little edie who as we all know big edie is mom little edie is is the daughter mm-hmm. um she is asked to be in this documentary and for both mom and daughter it's like wow, um, this is what I've been dreaming of doing. Yes. So in in the character that you've built, these two women somehow kind of get to where they've been looking to go. Mom has always encouraged, Big Edie has always encouraged Little Edie to follow her dream. Yes. And so Little Edie's, dream was 
I think also very different than um, the other young women of her age. So when little Edie graduated from Miss Porter's finishing school and had her debutante ball, <laughs> she was living in the city. And really, so the character that I build, this is my take on, on little Edie, is she overheard her parents having an argument where the dad wanted to end the marriage because Big Edie couldn't be what he needed. And he wanted a woman that was home and that would be raising the children and taking care of the house. And she was um, she was very, very bohemian from, from what I read uh, in research. And he was very, very conservative. So little Edie overhears this conversation in my book and decides right then and there, Wow. So I've, I, my dream is to become a performer and I can't get married because look what's happening to my mom. She wanted to sing and dad gets mad every time she wants to try to sing somewhere and grandpa gets so upset with her. So I'm not going to get married. I want to be a star. So for many years after she graduated from Miss Porter's, she was in the city going on auditions and trying to get her big break. Nothing really worked out for her. And there's a block of time, Sylvia, where we don't know what happened about 18 years. She's living in the city. There's no documentation. We don't know what's happening. I'm assuming she's going on auditions and and trying to become discovered. She does do some modeling. But something happens in in the book that I created. And she's 34 years old. And she comes back to Grey Gardens. And she's very broken. And she gets taken care of by her mother and she lives there for 25 years with her mother. And then the tables turn because her mother's getting older and, you know, it was in her upper seventies and they're living like they're living with all of these cats. And the house is really kind of, it's almost like, like a, a Gothic story where the house is almost kind of, kind of enveloping them and just devolving. And Little Edie takes very good care of of her mother. And then this situation happens with the Board of Health and they are about to be evicted. They call upon their their family members that, thank goodness, you know, step up to the plate, Jackie and Lee, and they get help. And then through asking Lee to help out, they meet the Maisels who become just so enamored with them. And after Lee decided to put her her film on hold, they had to wait one year. The Maisels go back and ask the Edies, could they do a documentary about them? So little Edie has waited a lifetime and stardom literally knocked on her front door. And big Edie was there to support her daughter. She was, you know, about 80 at the time they started filming. And she didn't really care about being in a film, but she said yes, because she knew that it meant so much to her daughter. And, you know, in, in between in the story, there's ups and downs and roller coasters and different things that that go on. But it's really a coming of age story. Um, that's like a middle aged coming of age story. And that can happen for so many of us women as well. I'm 56 years old. I I was blessed that I could stay home and raise my children that are 27 almost 26 and 19. And a couple of years ago, I started to go back to work part-time. And then I wrote my first book. I wrote my second book. And I'm having my own coming of age at, at, at 
56. You know, I'm also dealing with some health issues that I didn't expect uh, to happen, but it's a challenge that, you know, I'm stepping up to and I'm finding inner strength and I'm finding, you know, the support and strength from my Mahjong friends and family and friends in, in general. And it's been so wonderful. But I, I find for, for me, women's strength is so important. It's like oxygen for me. Like I couldn't breathe without having my girlfriends around me, both my girlfriends that play Mahjong and those, those that don't. And I think a lot of women out there feel that way. And not everyone is going to go to college and come out and, and be a lawyer or an accountant or a secretary or whatever it is that they want to do. Um, there's many different paths in life for a woman and there's no time limit on evolving and reaching goals. And I think till our dying breath, we have goals to reach. We are evolving constantly. And it is the beauty of being a woman. And I I just feel so blessed that I've had the opportunity to write these two books that, and I've, I've got two more books in my mind that that I'm hoping to, to move forward with. And I, I love your podcast. I, I think all of the different guests that you have on and the topics really all focuses on the power of women. And I believe that we're here to lift each other up. Well, Madeline Albright said, there's a special place in hell for women who don't support other women. <laughs> um, and as far as coming of age, I think we can come of age anytime. If we have a passion, um, our, our age by numbers and, and, you know, I've always said age is just a number and that's easy to do. Um, but the older we get, the more information we have, the stronger we get and the, the more, more courage we have. Oh, I love um, that for sure. Courage is so important. And through all of the experiences we've had, whether they be good experiences or bad, we learn, we grow, we evolve, and they help to give us that courage that we need. It is such an important word. Fern, where can people find out more about you? I have a website that I can be found on, which is www.fernbernstein.com. I am on Instagram at Fern Bernstein Writes, W-R-I-T-E-S. And I'm on Facebook at Fern Levitch Bernstein. Yes. Fern, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out to be with us, to be with me here today and talk about Mahjan, Grey Gardens, and women supporting other women. So well, I want you. to thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity, Sylvia. And anytime you're ready to learn Mahjong, I'm not that far away. I'm happy to come and teach you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for joining me today. If you liked what you heard, please share it with another person you think would be interested. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. This has been a Life of Prey production. <laughs>